In previous Sundays, we have been studying the Beatitudes, and from them we get something of the portrait of a Christian. If you look carefully at this portrait, you can see that he is one who stands before God in humble gratitude, making no claim, but knowing that all that he has comes from God, he is moved with compassion for the grief and the suffering of his fellow men. His life is devoted to the service of God's kingdom. He does not seek his own ends. He can be determined and aggressive and angry when the weak are oppressed, but he is not self-assertive or angry at slights of himself. He longs with an intensity for the triumph of goodness in his own life and in the life of the world, with a longing that is as strong and as much a part of his spiritual life as hunger and thirst are a part of his physical life and his body. He is not censorious or critical of those who fail, but he knows his own weaknesses. He will not break a bruised reed. He seeks to mend it. He is moved to show mercy, and mercy will be shown to him. He is single-minded in his devotion to God and to the things of God. He is a lover of peace, and he takes with him the spirit of reconciliation wherever he goes. Some respond to him, but some resent his presence. And as a rebuke to their way of life or a threat to their selfish interests, he suffers persecution. But when this comes, he suffers it with gladness because he remembers that this is the path that his Lord Jesus trod. That is why Jesus said, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. When our Lord Jesus began his ministry in the community where he grew up in Nazareth, you remember that famous sermon that he delivered there, how it offended some of the racial prejudices of some members of the congregation and resulted in a murderous attempt upon his life immediately following that discourse. Our Lord Jesus had some cruel things spoken about him. And if you take seriously the Lord Jesus Christ and his life really shines in you, it may just be that some things will be spoken of you. The evil one, the devil, usually sees that this happens. Sometimes it would be a worthy object of your devotional study to go through the Gospels and to note down the various slanders and the various names that our Lord Jesus was called. He was called crazy. They said he is beside himself. And how many young people have I known today who, when they have taken Jesus Christ seriously, are sometimes thought to be crazy by some of their parents who learned long ago to take Jesus with an ounce of salt and not the salt of the earth. Our Lord Jesus was said to have been in league with the devil. He was said to keep disreputable company, to run with drunkards and with gluttonous people. So these are some of the slanders that were heaped at him. 
There was an insinuation that he was an illegitimate son. These are other things that were cast at his teeth. And so the one who follows the Lord Jesus must know that Jesus is already cautioning him so that he will not panic when it comes of persecution. When you fly on an airplane, if you go very far, sometimes the captain will come on and say, ladies and gentlemen, we are approaching a thunderstorm. Would you please fasten your seat belts? Uh, it may become a little bumpy. He says this because he wants you to know it before you come into the turbulence so that you will not panic or be afraid. Sometimes when you go to the dentist, he will say this is going to hurt a little. If he doesn't, you may go through the roof and he says I touched a nerve. <laughs> so he cautions you about it. Well, our Lord Jesus did not want us to be startled or to be panicked when we incurred something of the enemy of the same forces that were put against him. He knew that this was happening. And so it makes a direct connection because he has spoken about the prophets who were slandered and who were persecuted before for him to caution those who would follow him about it. Even in his own lifetime, there was one man, do you remember that blind man that John tells us about in chapter 9 of his record of the gospel? How when he had come to believe to be healed and to believe something special about Jesus that he was cast out of the synagogue his parents were intimidated by the Pharisees and how Jesus sought him out one day and led him into a further revelation of just who he the Lord Jesus really was the Son of God well our Lord wanted us to be ready for the persecution that would come. The earliest Christians suffered all manner of persecution. We read about it in the book of Acts, and then when we come into the history books, we see the most dreadful things that they went through. This is a little commentary by William Barclay on the Gospel according to Matthew. It was made originally for the Church of Scotland's Bible studies. The penalties which a Christian had to suffer were terrible beyond description. All the world knows that Christians were flung to the lions or burned at the stake, but these were kindly deaths. Nero wrapped the Christians in pitch and set them alight and used them as living torches to light his gardens. He sewed them up in the skins of wild animals and set his hunting dogs upon them to tear them to death. They were tortured on the rack. They were scraped with pincers. Molten lead was poured, hissing upon them. Their eyes were torn out. Parts of their bodies were cut off and roasted before their eyes. Their hands and feet were burned and cold water was poured over them to lengthen the agony. These things are not pleasant to think about, but these are the things that a man had to be prepared for if he took his stand for Jesus Christ. So our Lord Jesus wished to caution those who follow him that they might not be carried to heaven on flowery beds of ease. And so in connection with this, these who are later to know what it will be socially to be cast out, suppose you were a stone cutter. And one day someone comes and says, we want to build a temple here to Aphrodite, the goddess of sex and love. 
You as a believer in the Lord Jesus know that this is against and contrary to all that you believe about the commandments of God and that you cannot go along with erecting such a building so you lose your job. Suppose you receive an invitation to a feast. The pagans were very uh, practical. When a sacrifice was made to one of their gods, to Bacchus, the god of drinking and of drunkenness, of wine, they would have a feast. My Lord Bacchus invites you to attend uh, a feast in his honor uh, tonight at such and such a place. Well, the believer who received this couldn't go to a thing like that. And so he was accused of being antisocial. There were people who heard Christians talk about eating the body and drinking the blood of Jesus, and so they were called cannibals. The pagans heaped all manner of insults upon them. And the Lord Jesus knew that these things would happen, and so he prepares them for the persecution that's to come. And then he connects immediately to it the two great metaphors of Christian influence and what they are. Why would a Christian such as I read that description to you a moment ago, which lives up to the Beatitudes, be persecuted in such a manner as this? Those horrible punishments that were put upon those earliest Christians could have been avoided by these Christians simply by taking a little pinch of incense and placing it at the altar of Caesar and saying, My Lord Caesar. And then they received a little certificate saying that they had burned incense to Caesar and now they could go and worship any god they wanted to. But these Christians would rather die these horrible deaths than to deny Jesus as Lord. Are we really willing to go through anything like that today? Or would we be, if it were put upon us and it may very well come, I wonder if we're exercising even this Christian influence which we ought to be exercising. And maybe this is why we're not being persecuted. You are the salt of the earth, said Jesus. You are the salt of the earth. Those who have been touched by him, who have been born again of the Spirit of God, have a new quality of life about them that is totally different. Jesus didn't say, well, everyone here who would like to be salt, please raise your hand. What this world needs is salt. He didn't say that. It would be so kind if some of you, do you feel led to be salt? Jesus didn't say that. He said to those who followed him, you are the salt of the earth. Those who believed in him as the son of God and who would be willing to go all those links for him, certainly they are salt. What would salt mean to these hearers of our Lord Jesus? Well, salt was known best at that time for the fact that it stopped corruption. It was known for its purifying effects. Peter and John were fishermen. If they caught some fish in the Sea of Galilee, they knew what they would do to keep them from spoiling before they hit the market in Jerusalem. They would take them, and after they had been dressed, they would pack them in some salt. This was to stop corruption and decay. Well, this is one of the things that Christians are to do. Are we really exercising this quality of stopping corruption and decay? Think about our divorce record for a while. Think about the permissive attitude towards sex. 
Think about the drunkenness that exists. And then ask yourselves, are we stopping this sort of thing by our Christian influence where we can? We ought to be. We ought to be. When we succumb to the devil and we become drunken or we get into immorality, we're not stopping corruption. We are being stopped by it. But we who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ are to stop evil things. When you study the history of those who were the most evangelical in their belief and believed with all of the fervor of their soul in the new birth and the doctrines of conversion, if you look at one by the name of John Wesley, you can see him preaching away in Bristol, England, announcing for everyone in that port city where great slave vessels came that he intended to preach against slavery, and he did. The last letter that he ever wrote when he was about 90 years of age was to William Wilberforce, telling him that all of the powers of hell would be arraigned against him, Wilberforce, if he continued in his fight against slavery but that he should go on and do so with all that was in him. He was exercising salt in stopping corruption. And you can see this right on through the history of England if you look at Lord Shaftesbury. See him labor in behalf of the little children, four and five years of age, who had to work in factories. Watch him as he took care of assisting the pitiful little chimney sweeps who at the age of six and eight had their bodies bathed in brine water to make them tougher. And then they were put in the chimneys to go up and clean the soot out of them. And if they didn't go fast enough, their cruel masters would build a, a fire of smoke down below and urge them and push them on up through the chimneys. William Wilberforce, a godly, believing, evangelical Christian, fought it with all of the fervor of his soul, he exercised his considerable influence to stop that form of evil and corruption. But Christians are not only to exercise a force in stopping evil by being the salt of the earth, but Christians are to put some zest into life by having a new form of life, a life that gets its joy from another source, one of the surprises of many people when they are converted is the joy that comes to them. C.S. Lewis, when he describes his own conversion experience, he, the brilliant atheist, who had so hard fought against believing, at last kneels at Magdalen College and is willing to let God be God and Christ be who he is, and to become Lord of his life. He describes his conversion as the Lord pulling him into the kingdom, kicking and screaming and furtively darting his, air, his eyes, looking for an opportunity to escape. And then do you know what he calls his autobiography? Surprised by joy. Surprised by joy. And this I see all the time in young people. Surprised by joy. A new joy. You remember on that day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came? They saw Peter and John so full of joy that they said they're drunk. They weren't drunk. Not with the kind of wine they had. 
but with the new wine of the Spirit. And this made all the difference. All the difference. There is a quality that comes, the new flavor that comes. One of my favorite stories is about a man named Frank Smith. He died at 83 over in London. Frank Smith had the distinction of being raised in the family of a green grocer. And those of you who have studied overseas know what that means. Down the street, there's a green grocer where you go and buy your vegetables. And uh, Frank Smith's uh, uh, family was so large that it was frequently assigned him to cook the potatoes at night. He got to experimenting with his potatoes, and he began to slice them up very thin and began to sell what the British call potato crisps. He sold a thousand packets a week and thought he was doing very good. And then one day he made a brilliant discovery that something was missing. It was salt. So he took a little pinch of salt and put it in a little piece of blue paper and twisted it up and it went into every package of potato crisps. And then zoom, there went the market. Great farms were bought to raise the potatoes and it became a huge, huge industry all over the world just by adding a little salt to give it some tang, a zest, a relish, flavor. You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt, and this is a danger Jesus warns against, if the salt has lost his savor, great day in the morning, if the salt has lost its savor, if it lost its taste, how many tasteless, insipid, lifeless people who call themselves Christians do you know? What if we went through the denominations and said the session is going to meet and we're going to see whether people have any flavor in their life? My, what a change it would make. And one of the greatest enemies of the faith is to see the people who have lost their tang, their zest, their joy. Nothing pleases the devil any more than to have these people load up the church rolls because no one wants to join that crowd. He likes that. It is therefore good for nothing, those who have lost their flavor, good for nothing but to be cast out and be trodden under the foot of men. What a terrible thing. We might be cast out by men because of our faithfulness to Christ, but if we are true and faithful to him, he will add strength to the persecution that we go through because we are in intimate union with him and he is in our lives. Maybe that's why Jesus put this here, because he remembered the prophets and how they were cast out. But he does not want us to be cast out because of a lack of flavor and because of a lack of joy and because of a lack of zest in our commitment to him. Jesus takes his metaphor a little further. Not only are we to be the salt of the earth and stop corruption and add flavor to life, but we are to be the light of the world. And again, Jesus didn't say, would all of you who would like to be light please raise your hand. He didn't say what this world needs is light. He said, you are the light of the world. You who are committed, who are under his lordship, you are the light of the world. And here, the word salt of the earth means earth like geography, the little place where I might serve. The bishop of Lower Flat Creek uh, <laughs> here in Montreat uh, is not a big place. 
but think of what can be done by the Lord if we're faithful and true to his service. We can do a lot of things for him. Black Mountain isn't nearly as big as Wittenberg was, where Martin Luther nailed his 95 sentences on the door of the Castle Church. Montreat Anderson College is, is bigger than the University of Wittenberg. And yet the Lord did a mighty work there. Maybe he can do a mighty work here when we're willing to, uh, to be what he wants us to be. Now here, the word year, the light of the world, is different. World here is cosmos. We have made a lot of chaos in the world. Cosmos has to do with order. It's a Greek word, and if you go to the city of Athens and you look at those famous buildings, one of the things that strikes you immediately is the order, uh, those tremendous lines architecturally. The Greeks loved order. By the word, you get your word um, cosmetics. Uh, comes from the word uh, cosmos. You put your face in order. <laughs> Uh, uh, it can be in bad disarray, and then you go put on the cosmetic. Then, uh, ye are the light of the, the world. Ye are the light of the world. We're to bring the light of order to the world. We're to bring, uh, and this, is, this terrible thing of sin has caused us to be all out of kelter, all out of order. This is one of the problems that exist ecologically today. When we see all of the problems around with our polluted streams and the defilement of our earth, and now we've reached out into space and we have all that expensive junk uh, floating around there, and uh, uh, you see what we're doing, uh, we, we get in trouble, we get in trouble when we do not live out life or govern our own lives or our own homes or our own earth under the lordship of Christ. Under the lordship of Christ. So what? Someone called you a fanatic. Heaven will be full of fanatics. Uh, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. And that light shines in some dark places. And it's meant we're spoiled now by this metaphor because uh, light is so common. I grew up in the days of RFD, which is Rural Free Delivery, and REA, which was Rural Electrification. And out in the boonies, uh, where you had a coal oil lamp, and you had to go through a lot of cleaning of that lamp, uh, light was really a luxury. Some people can remember how, how great a benefit uh, light is. Well, Christians are meant to be the light of the world. Jesus said, a city set on a hill cannot be hid. He knew that these fishermen, when they were out in the storm on the Sea of Galilee, without any compass, they might look up to a little village nearby and take their bearings from it. A city set on a hill, and this would help them to be a point of reference. And people are looking at us for some guidance about what our attitude should be on sex, on drinking, on the race question, on war, on all of these things. What is our attitude going to be and how do we base it? Do we base it upon what the light of the world, the Lord Jesus has taught us? And that light is to shine upon us and to be reflected toward other people. Or is there an eclipse as the world come between us and the light of the world. 
The moon is seen at night because the sun shines upon it. And the sun of our soul is the sun of God, and he should be shining upon us and we should bring some light. People should be able to recognize us like a city set on a hill that cannot be hid. When you name the name of Jesus, other people will be watching you, and if they see you do something, they will say, well, this is wrong or this is right because he or she is a Christian and she does this. Now, is your influence really counting for Christ? When that candle is lighted, it is not lighted to show up what candles look like, but it, and it is not to be put under a bushel. You don't light it and say, go get me a, a something to put over my little candle. I've got to keep it from going out, and I want to keep it just, just light this way, so go get something to cover it up. You don't cover it up, said Jesus. You take it, and you put it up on the shelf so that it'll give light in the house. Don't cover it up. Don't be a secret Christian. You, you, you are to let your light shine, and people are to see a difference, a distinctive quality about your light. As I said before, this may be one reason we're not being persecuted. There's no need when we're in such harmony with the world about us and its standards of morality. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine. Those who belong to the Lord Jesus have their light shining. Think about the Apostle Paul. Think about Peter. Think about Timothy. Think about those characters in the Bible. Think about the saints down through the ages. Think about good people you know who love the Lord Jesus. I went by to see Sam Leonard this week. Ninety years old. Every day, he says his grace out loud as he's done all of his life, even though he's there by himself. Each night he reads his Bible and gets down on his knees and prays. Even though he's 90, every Sunday finds him here in his pew at church, walking to church. I told someone about him, after I, about him after I'd been to visit with him, and they said he's the salt of the earth. It's a great compliment. That's what happens when the qualities from God's life touches the life of a believer the salt of the earth, and the light of the world to bring his light. So that men may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. We're not to glorify the lamp that shines, but it shines so that we might glorify our Father who is in heaven. We are to be burning and shining lights. This is what the saints and the martyrs have been down through the ages. And this is what believers are meant to show to the world today. When I was over in Lausanne last year at the Congress on Evangelism, one of the interesting things was to hear a discourse on the church under persecution. And there are places in the world today where it is terribly dangerous physically to be a Christian. 
And one of those who spoke and spoke out of intimate experience was a Korean pastor. And he told this story with which I conclude. During the conflict, the communist soldiers moved into a peaceful farm village. Sometime before this, a faithful missionary had brought the gospel to this village. Those who were converted were soon witnessing to their friends. It wasn't long until most of the folk in that village had turned to Jesus Christ in a simple faith. One day, the communist soldiers made all the people of this particular village gather in their church. They told them that they were to renounce their faith in Christ or to face certain death. One of the soldiers went up to the wall and jerked a picture of Jesus off the wall. He ordered each person to come down the aisle and spit upon the picture of Christ. The first man down the aisle was a deacon in the church. He looked at the picture for a few seconds, then quickly he spat and he walked to one side. The man who followed him did the same thing. The third and the fourth men imitated the first two. The fifth person to walk forward was a young teenage girl. She looked at the picture of Christ. Her eyes filled with tears. She bent down, picked it up, wiped the spit off with her skirt, clutched it to her heart, and said, shoot me. I'm ready to die. The soldier couldn't shoot. He ordered everyone out. Shortly afterwards, four shots were fired. The people overheard the communist soldier say to four of them, you're not fit to live. If you had a chance to renounce communism, you would do the same thing. But because of the strong faith of one young girl, the rest of that village was saved. Jesus said, whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. Let us stand in prayer. <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father, it is so easy and so comfortable for so many of us to name the name of Christ that we scarce can take in what it must mean in some parts of this earth. But we pray that you will help us to so draw near to Jesus that those qualities of his might emanate from our lives by the power of the blessed Holy Spirit, that we might speak out against that which is evil and wrong, even though we might incur the hostility and the opposition of the world. Help us in our own lives to be faithful and true so that other people can look to us and trust our influence that we might lead them in the right way. Help us to know that our Lord Jesus Christ has brought to us not just the Beatitudes to be considered by men, but the lives of those who are touched by him to be considered by others, so that other people might safely look at our lives and follow in our steps and not be led astray because we seek to walk the path our Lord Jesus trod. 
And Father, if there is any person here who has never known Jesus Christ as Savior and still lives under the burden of a life centered in self and not caring for thee, help that one to know that an invitation is given to them to ask Jesus to come into their hearts. Enable them somehow, some way this day to yield up their lives to the Lordship of Christ. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our teacher and our guide, be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore.